Just think, a few more months and we might have played the palace. Yeah, and Mom had to louse it up. Of all the dirty, rotten luck. Is there any other kind? Where was I when they passed out brains? Right at the head of the line. Where was I when they passed out talent? Right up front, dead mine. But when it came to the line where they handed out luck, where was your smart, clever friend? Back showing off his talent and brains to the bums lining up at the end. When they passed out looks Needless to say I was there Holding on in the charm department Herbie got more than his share But when the time rolled around And they handed out luck Where was your good-looking clown? Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, August 28th, the end of the summer, 2022. My name is James Marino and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia. Peter is a playwright, journalist and historian with a number of books. His new book, The Book of Broadway Musical Debates, Disputes and Disagreements, will be released coming up on September 1st, just a few days away, and can now be pre-ordered on Amazon. Please pre-order it on Amazon. Let's give Peter the big boost he deserves. <laughs> Peter also has columns at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, Encore Monthly, and many of the places. Hello, Peter. Hi. Hello. This is the first time that I, I, I can recall Peter and I were just chatting about this. I, I don't think we've ever done This Week on Broadway with just two people. We've done This Week on Broadway with usually three people up to nine people. We actually did one episode where we did nine people. And it was a disaster. But it, it was a lot of, no, it was a lot of fun, but it went on forever. It was like, pretty sure it was like the longest episode we ever had. It was a uh, preview for the Tony Awards, and we had Michael Riedel on, and we had Adam Feldman on, we had uh, a bunch, we had uh, David uh, Cody. Uh, uh, no, not David Cody, but Finkel. David. Finkel. Yeah, David yeah. Finkel was on. Uh-huh. Uh, we had a bunch of Tony Award voters at the time, and, uh, it was like the longest episode ever. It was like three hours or three hours plus. It was forever. Anyway, but Michael Portantier uh, is uh, away this week. He's up in P-Town, as we previewed last week. Uh, the Maryland May concert um, is up in P-Town this week. And Michael, of course, is a huge devotee of Maryland. And uh, he is up there enjoying the beautiful P-Town and uh, the end of the summer. So he'll be back next week with us. So, Peter, I, I talked about the uh, the book of Broadway musical debates, disputes, and disagreements in the opening, and that is just the – it's going to be released in just a few days. And so I thought maybe we would just uh, preview that a little bit for our listeners, um, you know, what type of chapters are in there. So tell us about the book. 
Well, uh, I think I may have mentioned this before, that it really was inspired by a book I saw in a bookstore called, um, I think, The Boston Book of Sports Arguments, who was <laughs> the better left fielder, Carl Yastrzemski, or um, Ted Williams, um, Larry Bird, Bill Russell, um, all, all the, Bobby Orr, um, or Derek Sanderson. <laughs> um, so I thought this should happen with musicals. And so um, I did put together this book asking questions that uh, have been questions that I ask people a lot. Such as if there were a time machine, what would you go back and see? So uh, for that, for that one specifically, um, and for most of the others, the way I structured it was like the Tony Awards. I would give four nominees and one winner. Um, as I perceived it. So, uh, and again, the whole point of the book is to read it and say, oh my God, are you crazy? How could you leave out? What? You really think that? I, I hated that. You know, all that business. Fine. Fine. This is just one person's opinion and you are certainly encouraged to debate, dispute, and disagree. So um, so my choices, if there were a time machine, what musical would I return to see? I would return, uh, my nominees are Another Evening with Harry Stoons. Now, you're pardoned if you've never heard of this 1961 <laughs> review, but uh, not many people saw it because it opened on October 21st, 1961, and it closed on October 21st, 1961. And it had a very interesting cast because it had Diana Sands, who uh, was the original Beneath Her in A Raisin in the Sun, and Dom DeLuise, who became a, a reasonably famous comedian. But um, it also had Barbara Streisand. And the question is, if we had been there, would we have said, gee, that young woman whose first name was misspelled in the program, um, it, it, was she really, is she really something? Is she really as good as we think? Or did she make any kind of impression? Who knows? Who knows? But that would be one. Another one of my choices would be 1776 in London. Now, Stuart Ostro produced it here, but he did not produce it in London. Alex Cohen, who was a big producer, uh, yeah. uh, produced it in London. And the thing was... It seemed like a bad idea to me that um, that this show would be done in London, given the fact that you have such line as the king is a tyrant and the lyric we say to hell with Great Britain. I mean, it, it's amazing to me. It lasted 168 performances, but I would have liked to have been in that audience to see how um, the, the audience would react. Would they bristle? Would they be silent? Would they um, grunt um, in disapproval? Who knows? Um, my third nominee would be um, South Pacific, uh, not the original, but in 1984, um, Ann Bogart uh, did a production at New York University. And more than three dozen actors played war-scarred World War II veterans who'd be introduced to the Rogers and Hammerstein musical. Their caretakers hoped that its optimism, be it cockeyed or grounded, would help them return to a happier civilian life. So a doctor watched, he didn't say a word. The nurses were, um, were five musicians and um, everybody played various roles. It was a very controversial production. Um, it did reasonably well. And I remember Ted Chapin, who was then head of the Roger and Hannah Stein organization, saying to me that uh, they asked for an extension and we, and we said no. No, we, we honored our contract to do it as um, so. Um, so uh, but I think my choice would have to be the Cradle Will Rock, that famous opening night that uh, has been detailed in that marvelous movie, Cradle Will Rock. So uh, so that's one of the questions I ask. I also say, what's the best musical of the decade? Um, uh, and I go through the 
decades, starting with the 40s, because um, that's when original cast albums happen. And that's where most of us get our information, um, because there's very little before that that we can really tie into. Uh, what's the most underrated musicals of the decade? Um, so I go to bat for a number of shows that I particularly liked, and we'll see if you did too. Uh, what musical had the best revival? What was the best revisal? Not revival, but revisal, where they fooled around mm-hmm. with it. Uh, sometimes that works out very well. Uh, sometimes it doesn't. Um, and um, so questions like that. And um, it goes on and on and on. And um, I, I hope that uh, a lot of people um, say, yeah, I agree with that. And I'm prepared for people uh, angrily um, disputing. And as I say, <laughs> saying, how could you leave out? But it really is for the um, tremendously devoted musical theater fan. Um, it, it's definitely um, not for somebody who hasn't been to the theater uh, much or, or at all. And um, as I say in the book, um, it is for people who love musicals because people who don't love musicals are children of a lesser God. So um, <laughs> so that's, uh, that's the book. And um, it, it winds up with, if there were a musical theater, Mount Rushmore, who would the fourth faces be on it that you would choose? So I'm not going to tell you who my choices are. It's murderously hard to decide what um, four, when you're limited to four, I mean, because so many, like Roger and Hammerstein are a team, they have to count as two people. So, you know, do, do you um, quote marks around this word waste um, two selections on Rodgers and Hammerstein? Um, so it, that's a murderously tough question. No question about it. <laughs> so so anyway, that's the book that comes out this week. And um, we'll see if anybody likes it. Well, uh, I have an inside baseball question for you about about this. Uh, did you come up with the title or did an editor come up with the title? You know, ironically enough, I I have written 21 books and only three times has the title I've chosen been accepted. Mm -hmm. This is one of the times, one of the three. Uh So um, what were the other two? Um, one was called a matter of finding, I used to write books for teenagers, uh, because I, I don't uh-huh. know if you ever knew this, but I was a, an advice columnist on 17 magazine. <gasps> I did not know that. How is yes. it? How do, how have I known you for 30 years? And <laughs> I do not know this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I dispensed advice, um, uh, for 17 magazine for a number of years. So if there are any women out there who still have some adolescent problems, just let me know and I'll solve them all for you. So um, for a while there, I was writing books for uh, young adults because an agent got in touch with me and said, listen, you're writing this column. I can probably sell fiction for you. So um, one was called A Matter of Finding the Right Girl, which uh, was about a boy who, uh, two friends who vowed that they would have sex with girls by the time they're 18. And um and now there's only a few weeks to go. So we'll see what happens there. Uh, so that was one that um, that uh, kept its name. One, uh, ironically enough, was about um, a girl who had an impossibly difficult last name that was always misspelled. And you can tell this is highly autobiographical. Uh, and, um, and she wants to change it to the consternation of her family. She wants to um, have a much nicer name and easier to spell name and all that goes with that. So uh, I named her Rose. And um, so the book I wanted to be called was Arose by Any Other Name. But anyway, it turned out to be called What's in a Name? 
So <laughs> it was pretty uh, similar. <laughs> uh, we know where the source came from, so they kept that. But uh, but for the most part, um, and let's put on musical um, was retained as the the title that I gave it. But other than that, boy, did they fool around with this, that, and the other thing? Um, it um, it uh, and who says they're wrong? You know, I I don't pretend to have all the answers, but um, who says they're wrong? But um, anyway, that's the title. Oh, that's great. Uh, you know, I've always thought of our Sunday morning discussions here on Broadway Radio as advice columns or possibly even therapy for a lot of us. And I think we all owe you some co-payments. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I have to say that every now and then I do get an email from somebody um, using the word therapy, ironically enough, uh, saying that um, it's, it's just nice to have uh, somebody who uh, um, who cares about this stuff as much as I do. And uh, because there are a lot of people out there who do. I'm looking yeah. forward to meeting Mike Meany tomorrow, who's come to town. Oh, and really? uh, he's one of our trivia answers. Yeah. Yes. So um, so we're going out to lunch. And so I love when I meet um, our listeners and I've made such one, uh, James, I said earlier today, I'm waiting for an out-of-town visitor. That came from, um, not from this podcast, I'll grant you, but, but when I was writing for Theater Week, he wrote me a letter. We've been friends for 30 years now. So uh, so it's really quite, we should get to know each other. Mm. We should. We care about this stuff. We understand this stuff. So as a result, we should all get to know each other. It's not always going to work out. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. I mean, there have been times when uh, I've met people that I wish I hadn't. But, you know, you got to budget that in. You know, uh, you're not going to connect with everybody, to be sure. But um, but I really wish that anybody coming to town would um, get in touch with me so we could get together and uh, have lunch, dinner, or at least a cup of coffee. I, I don't want to beat a, uh, a drum repeatedly over and over, but I did want to share with, uh, with everybody that... Um, my, my daughter, Charlotte, is uh, now 14, and this summer was her second summer at French Woods Festival, which is the uh, summer camp where they do a lot of musical theater. And, uh, and last summer, we couldn't visit her. It was her first year at French Woods, and because of COVID restrictions, we, uh. could, we couldn't visit the camp. We, you know, basically dropped her off literally at the door mm -hmm. of the camp mm -hmm. and at the very end picked her up and left. And we, and they usually, they, over the three weeks or four weeks or six weeks that they're there, they, um, they, uh, put on a show. And so Charlotte's show this year was Be More Chill. Uh, and honestly, I can't remember what last year's show was because we couldn't go see it. Sure. But so we got to go see her shows this year. She did Be More Chill and she did, uh, she sang in a rock band and uh, played bass guitar and two things that I never, ever would have imagined in my lifetime she would have done. <laughs> and then the third thing was, is that she did something that they call circus at Frenchwoods Festival where uh, they put on these sort of circus type of things but it was like really intense and dramatic and very very i mean the the the, the talent of these of these kids that are like 12 to 18 years old were just amazing but so charlotte did juggling fire which is the third thing that i never thought i'd see my daughter do was juggle, wow. fire, juggle fire so uh but my point here is that uh, I don't really know how many kids were at Frenchwoods. I'm going to say in in her session, maybe 500, 600 kids. Wow. But 500, 600 theater kids who are all the really 
you know, odd and not mainstream kids of their high uh -huh. schools or junior uh -huh. high schools uh -huh. that have met 500 other kids that are just That's like right. them. That's right. It's an incredible, incredible experience because they get to be fun and creative and weird and odd and be themselves for that time at Frenchwoods. And I, I think that this is a before and after moment for my daughter, Charlotte, that she she's really found her people. And yeah. and and that's what you, you what sort of what you're saying there too, Peter, is when the uh, listeners and readers of your columns connect with you and I, and I mean I have to tell you when listeners and readers have connected with me over the last two months when I started my cancer therapy sure. and chemotherapy, uh, it, it's been just an amazing uplifting experience. I mean, mm. It, mm. Uh, I, I uh, th there's a bunch of people right here in our our chat room who have gone above and beyond and just really, really helped me through this thing. But this is an incredible community. It's just oh, an yeah. incredible, and, um, incredible as community. the lyric goes in applause, when you've got good friends, you've got a good life. Think yeah. about that. So, um, so it really is quite true. And um, the optimism that uh, comes through so many of the, the golden age musicals put on a happy face you got to mm -hmm. have heart we'll talk about you got to have heart later yeah <laughs> you got to have a dream if you don't have a dream how are you going to have a dream come true climb every mountain fought every stream you know all the the optimism that was there in musical theater during the golden age um still sustains many of us i i have to update your bio in the bio that we read each week now to include the 17 magazine columnist so <laughs> 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 uh, it's, so, it's so wonderful. I never knew that. And you made a passing reference to Children of a Lesser God, yeah. uh, which was a play, not a musical. You know, That's right. uh, a play twice on Broadway. Uh, right. And uh, but I, I wonder if anybody has ever attempted to make it a uh, musical version. So uh, have you ever heard well. anything? No. Um, and it's funny you should say, have you heard anything? Because, of course, it does deal with um, deaf people. And uh, mm. it would be a challenge to do that. But I guess what we would, in any musical of Children of Belesco, what would happen is we would hear the interior thoughts of those people, uh, perhaps with a Greek chorus. Who knows? But um, And Deaf West uh, could do it. Yeah. What a good idea. Uh, deaf West, are you paying attention? Um, so I, I hope they are. Uh, it's funny you should say that because uh, Deaf West is one of the main reasons that we transcribe our podcasts now. Ah, oh, good for you. That's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. So, yeah, it, yeah uh, I don't think I, I've mentioned it recently, but if you uh, do know somebody who uh, would prefer to uh, listen to broad, quote, quote unquote, listen to Broadway radio through a transcript, you can always email transcripts at broadwayradio.com. And uh, we'll send back a Microsoft Word document that's a transcript. It's not 100%. It's close, but we're mm. working on it. Mm. I, we pay an outside service to do it, and uh, mm. transcription services can get very, very expensive as you I get as you get uh, more and more accurate. So we don't we don't pay a ton for a transcription service, but uh, mm. it's it gets the gist across, of, and, mm. and, and sometimes leads to very funny things. If you read the, you read the transcripts, <laughs> the, the, the ways in which uh, the transcription service has spelled Portantier and Felicia are amazing. Oh, wow, yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> so, Peter, uh, you were uh, a columnist uh, at 17, but you were also an English teacher, weren't you? Sure. Tell us about that. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, 
I have to say that my parents were uh, greatly responsible for that because they grew up during the Depression and um, when jobs were scarce. And mm-hmm. to them, teaching was a, a very secure thing, especially uh, at least in Massachusetts and most other places, I imagine. After three years, uh, they can't get rid of you. So uh, so that's something that they really uh, encouraged me to do. And uh, also said that um, <laughs> that uh, I could do whatever I wanted theatrically in the summers. I could do summer stock in the summers because I you have summers off. So uh, the, yeah, like I just show up uh, at the end of June and say, here I am, and they're going to welcome me with open arms anyway. <laughs> so uh, so that's what happened for um, for eight years, and um, it was it was great fun. I really uh, enjoyed it immeasurably. Um, I certainly enjoyed uh, my time with the drama club in directing a, um, at least mm-hmm. the third act of Plaza Suite with uh, Tony winner, Susan Helferty, uh, now a costume designer and, a, and a, quite an esteemed one uh, playing the lead. And uh, we did um, a, a lot of uh, fun things there. And uh, ironically enough, the thing we do at the end of this podcast is something I did every Friday. I used to give a trivia question. Oh, really? And uh, yeah. And um, ironically enough, when Follies um, was happening in Boston, I did not see I'm Still Here the number Can That Boy Foxtrot was in. And um, so I didn't discover I'm Still Here until the album came out. And even there, of course, it was terribly abridged. So in 1973, when they did that famous Sondheim event, uh, uh, which became an album with the Scrabble cover, um, I heard uh, Nancy Walker, which is still my favorite rendition of the song, um, say, I've been through Brenda Frazier and I'm here. <laughs> and I didn't know who Brenda Frazier was. This, of course, is long before the Internet. And so that was my trivia question that week, seeing if anybody could answer it. Wow, it was so amazing when I came in on Monday morning, each class whoa, did they have stories about Brenda Frazier? Because they all had mothers who knew who Brenda Frazier was. One girl actually said to me, my mother never has the time to talk to me because there are four kids in our family. And when I said, mom, who's Brenda Frazier? She just stopped what she was doing. She sat down at the kitchen table and told me the whole story about this woman who was a big debutante and had um, this lavish, lavish coming out party, uh, which was highly criticized at the time because indeed it was the depression and people saying you're spending all this money uh, for this. And um, and she had a terribly sad life. She married a very strange man who was uh, beneath her station, as her parents felt. And she wound up having a lot of suicide attempts. I mean, a lot more than you can uh, even think of as a lot. So, I mean, it was so amazing to have these kids come in with this information. And um, so, so it's sort of history is repeating itself with by giving these questions at the end. Um, so, uh, so that happened. But uh, frankly, um, uh, when my wife uh, fell in love with somebody else at work, um, I and said she didn't want to be with me anymore. I took the opportunity to come to New York and just seek my fortune, whatever that might be. So what I thought was the worst thing in my life turned out to be the best thing in my life. The worst, best thing that's ever happened. Yeah. You know, ironically enough, uh, uh, seriously, um, to use another Sondheim lyric, not a day goes by hmm. that, I, that I don't thank both of them for getting me here. So uh, so it's, it's um, you know, of course, <laughs> have all my dreams come true? Not remotely. Have some come true? Yes, they have. And uh, I'll certainly accept the ones that have uh, happened. So uh, when I was growing up, I grew up, uh, I went to high school uh, out on Long Island at a, in a community called Hopog, H-A-U-P-P-A-U-G-E. Yeah, sure. Um, 
And in my high school, my librarian was this guy named William Lapone. Ah. And uh, Mr. Lapone was our librarian for a few years, an English teacher, uh, at which I thought about when, with you would be an English teacher. And he brought his, uh, his brother and sister into the high school uh, for what was called at Hopak High School at the time, Triple E, E-E-E, which is the Enhanced Educational Experience, uh-huh. where folks would come in and talk about, you know, their lives and their careers and things like this. And his brother was uh, Bobby Lapone and his sister was Patty, um, which I don't think that anybody really grasped how lucky we were. We were. I mean, it just... Um, just amazing that that Bobby and Patty would come uh, and talk to high school students who were mostly like, "Oh my God, what am I doing here?" Yeah. type type of thing. And then you have your four or five theater kids, and I was one of them that was like, "Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God!" Uh, and uh, well, uh, ironically enough, uh, going back to my English teacher days, I will never forget being in the teacher's room. And uh, Carl Hendrickson, who was teaching English at the high school, too, came in looking dazed, dazed. And he said, one of my former students has been nominated for a Tony Award. <gasps> and this was Patty Lapone for the Robert Bridegroom. Now, no, huh. nobody knew who she was then. You know, this was yeah. uh, obviously Tony voters, uh, the nominating committee did. But but anyway, he was shocked. And I said, oh, um, yeah, um, she was your student. Huh? He said, yeah. I remember that she just wouldn't stop talking in class. And I had to say to her, you have the biggest mouth of anybody I have ever had in all my years of teaching. So um, I almost have brought it up when I've interviewed her, but um, but I haven't. And um, I guess there's still time and I may, but I guess as the years go on, she may not remember Mr. Hendrickson. But um, I was so sorry to see about uh, Bobby Lapone um, because I've had wonderful experiences with him. He appeared um, more than once at the Shakespeare Theater of New Jersey when I was reviewing for the Star Ledger. So he's had some very nice conversations and he was quite, quite amenable and enthusiastic about talking and all that goes with that. You know, some some are not good at that. Um, and uh, But he was quite wonderful and gregarious and uh, I really appreciated him. And of course, he'll always be remembered as the original Zach in a chorus line. Mm. Uh, always, always, always. And uh, that must have been really quite an experience, as he certainly told me it was um, working through that and um, never being sure if he was going to uh, be retained. Because with Michael Bennett, you just never knew if you're going to get fired mm. in two seconds. Um, just ask Lanny Kazan about that. And um, so he really um, talked in, in great detail about the fact that he was scared every second that he was going to lose his job. Yeah, so Bobby Lapone uh, passed away on Saturday, uh, yesterday, August 27th, after a three-year battle with uh, pancreatic cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Peter had mentioned some of his uh, acting credits up front, but uh, he was instrumental in creating uh, MCC's theater, which at, at, at the time was Manhattan Class Company, uh, mm-hmm. with Bernie Telsey, um, and uh, it's just... Just amazing and wonderful that he got to see the fruition of his theater being built on the west side Absolutely. of Manhattan, mm-hmm. which is now going to be there for a lifetime. Uh, and- now, here's the irony. Um, 
yesterday I was um, filing programs and I saw um, a program from uh, 1966 when I saw Liza Minnelli do the pajama game at Painter's Mill Theater in Maryland. Mm, yeah. And um, Luba Lisa, who some may know from I Had a Ball, uh, was in it. And um, so um, I opened it up you know, and said, gee, you know, um, anybody in this um, and there in the chorus was Robert Lupone. Isn't it? It's amazing. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, it was just amazing on the day that he died to actually run into his name in a program from 1966. It was just incredible to have that experience. That's I, what happened. I should also include that Will Cantler uh, is also instrumental in the, the trio of, of Bernie and Bobby uh, uh, putting together MCC's uh, theater over the since the 80s. And, uh, and, and the three of them have created something that uh, you know, we'll go on, we'll go on for and so really how many triumvirates last. Yeah. You know, really, exactly. you know, that, they, that's very impressive. <laughs> uh, uh, a lawyer told me once a, a partnership is the only ship that will never, that will never uh, last. <laughs> you know, the sh- <laughs> partnership will always sink always. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. It, it happens. So as you had mentioned just a few minutes ago, you know, our relationships are tough and people change and yep. grow apart, grow together. Yeah. Obviously, the, the three of them really grew together at MCC and made something mm-hmm. that is just mm-hmm. unbelievably wonderful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Peter, you uh, traveled a bit this uh, in this past week. You got up to the Shaw Festival up in Canada. So uh, you saw five shows there. So tell us first about the Shaw Festival itself. Well, um, they started 60 years ago. This is their uh, 60th anniversary season, which is really quite impressive, considering the fact that they started off so modestly. Um, They actually started in a courthouse. And the first season they did, shall we say, one and a half plays because they did Shaw's Candida. And then they did Don Juan in Hell, which is actually an act of Man and Superman. So that's how they started. Okay, fine. What's happening 60 years later? This year, they started on February 9th, and they'll continue until December 23rd in three theaters. Three nice ones, too, by the way. They'll have more than a dozen offerings, and uh, some of them are new plays. They don't they don't limit themselves to Shaw. I mean, there's only so many plays. Shaw wrote, Shaw wrote a lot of plays, but come on. You know, if you're going to have more than a dozen offerings um, each year, you know, you got to go elsewhere. So, um, so ranging from new classics like uh, Brandon Jacobs Jenkins' um, Everybody, which was done in 2017 here. Uh, and, you know, Shaw gets represented here, too, with Too True to Be Good and um, The Doctor's Dilemma. So um, it, it really it's a charming town, too. I mean, it you would think that it would have to be very touristy uh, considering. And there's a tiny bit of that, but far less than you get in places like this. I mean, um, I don't think I saw a single franchise store uh the food is excellent it um every time we had a meal at a restaurant it was top notch <clears throat> and every time we had ice cream at um mm-hmm. uh, an ice cream stand it was top notch as well believe me so uh so it really was uh, quite an experience just to walk down that main street uh where um 
the theaters are located. Two of them are in the same building, and one is um, a, a bit of a walk down the street. And um, but it's really, really quite wonderful to see so many people so interested in coming to the Shaw Festival and um, really patronizing the um, the three theaters. So um, uh, I wish I could have seen more, but uh, time was um, limited, and um, so I did get to see five of them um, that are currently running. And that's the thing; it's all in repertory. So the person you see doing a show in the afternoon is a person you may see that night in a show. And I mean, how they keep it all straight is always such a magical thing about repertory. You don't really expect that uh, people can even do one play and memorize all those lines and the blocking and all that goes with that. But here they are two hours later doing a different show entirely. It's just amazing. Just amazing. So, um, so I was thrilled to go and um, it, it did not let me down. So uh, you did see the, the five shows. Uh, the other shows that are there, uh, let's see, this is how we got here. No, you did see that. No. No? No, I'll tell you what I saw. I saw The Importance of Being Earnest. I saw The Doctor's Dilemma, uh, again by Shaw. Um, I saw an Indian play called Chitra. Now, what they do is um, at 1130 in the morning, they do a one-act play uh, that's uh, an hour or less. And this is actually a play by a very famous Indian author, Rabindranath Tagore. I have no idea if I'm remotely pronouncing it correctly, but it's a very long first name and uh, a last name that is subject to any type of pronunciation. So I'm not sure if I get it right. But um, even though this play was written uh, quite a long time ago, um, it it really comes across as very contemporary, which is really quite wonderful. And that is the fact that it deals with Chitra, who is a butch. And she doesn't really want to be. She would like to be beautiful. And the gods um, favor her. She says, if I can only have one day of being beautiful, they said, we'll give you a year. All right. So she meets this guy um, who has taken a vow of chastity. He has vowed to be chased for 12 years. Why he chose 12, I have no idea, as opposed to 11 or 10 or whatever. Yeah. But anyway, he chose 12 years. He's going to be chased. And then he sees this beautiful girl. Whoa. Let's see how long he's going to keep that vow. However, the question is, what's going to happen when the year is up? When she turns into the person she was, will he still love her? So that is the conundrum that's here in Chitra. And I have to say that one of the reasons it was so magnificent was because Gabriella Sanda Singh was so terrific in it. Oh, did she come in that stage? You know, you'd have to fall in love with her no matter what character she was playing in the play, the male uh, butch one or the um, quite uh, alluring female one. So it really was quite something. And, you know, you really, really, really I mean, you know, have to give credit to um the uh, new artistic director who, you know, I mean, he, he had a tough act to follow, uh, Tim McDonald, because <sighs> Jackie Maxwell, who had done it for um, quite a few years. In fact, now there's even a Jack, Jackie Maxwell theater um, w really uh, put this theater into high gear. And so uh, it's always hard when somebody leaves and somebody takes over because um, you, you do have a tough act to follow if it has been a tough act to follow. And Jackie was so. So uh, to find this play was really, really something uh, because, you know, this this one doesn't get produced here, there and everywhere. It's the first time I ever heard of it. Um, maybe it gets produced a lot, but if so, it's escaped my attention. And another one that escaped my attention, and this is something the Mint Theater should uh, uh, investigate, 
It really is quite something. It's called Just to Get Married. Mm-hmm. It's a play um, from the uh, first decade of the 20th century. It was produced here uh, in 1912. It opened on New Year's Day, and it couldn't make it till February. Very short run, and I can fully understand why. Because um, this <laughs> uh, here's a play that would have been ahead of its time for most of the 20th century, because it deals with um, Georgiana, who's unmarried, And she admits to being 29 last (laughs) April. And that unnerves her relative. She lives with an aunt. And uh, the aunt really um, wants to get her married off. As she uh, says, uh, Aunt Catherine sighed the last time she wished me happy returns of the day on my birthday. I knew what she was sighing over, her dwindling chances of getting someone to support me. So this lady knows the reality of life and she knows that she's going to have to get married because she's living off her aunt and uncle and she doesn't want to do that, but she doesn't want to get married until Mr. Wright comes along, but Mr. Wright isn't coming along and there's Adam, who she calls Ad Dumb because he seems so dull and he's a stick and um, he's never interesting and he fumbles with his words and all that goes with that. Well, Playwright Cicely Hamilton has a big surprise in store for us because all that has happened with Adam, all that's happened with Adam is that he's very nervous about asking her to marry him. He's really attracted to her. He likes her spirit, but he's petrified that if he asks her to marry him, that she's going to say no, and then his hopes will be dashed. So he's bumbling and fumbling around. And we accept this when we see this as his true nature. No, no. Once she says, yes, I will marry you. He just blossoms into life. He's got what he wanted out of life. Mm. Now he's self-assured. Now he's confident. Now he's sincere. Now he's secure. It really is something to see this happen. And of course, we have to um, give a great deal of credit uh, to the actor who is um, playing um, the part, Christopher Bowman. Um, Names that, uh, these are Canadian actors and they won't mean anything to anybody, but they really should because this guy was phenomenal at turning into this dull dishwater guy into this not quite a force of nature but certainly a happy guy and he's really looking forward to his life with her and she is not and the day before the wedding she realizes she can't do it to him that's what's nice she can't do it to him because she says i really don't love you i just accepted you because i'm I'm 29 last april and um time's getting on and i just can't do it to you and he is devastated because he really thought that she did love him and with a situation like you, you you would think how could there possibly be a happy ending to this story and yet cicely hamilton found a way to make it happy and believable (laughs) <laughs> it would, I, I will admit that some people in the audience um, at one point said, oh, you know, very surprised and they were dubious. But I think by the end of the play, the um, the move that Cicely uh, Hamilton made uh, convinced them that it was the right move. And um, so what a discovery. And you again, who finds this play that ran <laughs> a month 
on Broadway. You know, where do you find these things? I mean, you've got to give this guy credit for really uh, putting this um, these two plays that um, I, I really do believe are known to the general public and uh, even the theater going public for getting them out there. And boy, did the, that audience applaud at each one tremendously, tremendously. As for the importance of being earnest, it was a pretty by-the-book production, uh, which is fine. And ironically enough, the woman who was so good as Chitra was um, Cecily Cardu in uh, this production. Again, you know, repertory. They have to get on the ball. They have to do it and so on and so forth. The one strange thing that was worth trying, I'm not saying it was ultimately successful, but it was worth trying is you have to understand this was my 17th production of uh, The Importance of Being Earnest, uh, a play I obviously love dearly if I keep going to it. I mean, I could have seen something <laughs> else that day, but, you know, I wanted to see Earnest. So, um, but Earnest is often defined by Lady Bracknell, which is kind of interesting because Lady Bracknell doesn't appear that much in the play. She doesn't come in until the middle of the first act. The next time you see her is in the middle of the third act. She does not appear in act two at all. And yet so many of us, when we think of the importance of being earnest, thinks of Lady Bracknell. And it's almost like the Phantom of the Opera. You know, they say she's on stage for what, 32 minutes or something like that. Um, well, Lady Bracknell doesn't um, um, dominate um, the uh, play as much as we might think, unless, of course, she really does um, throw herself into it in a way that some people have accused people of chewing the scenery. Nobody will ever, ever accuse um Kate Henning of uh, chewing the scenery in this play. It was the most human Lady Bracknell I've ever seen. She just wasn't out to uh, deliver haughty uh, flippantries. She uh, really was human. Now, in a strange way, that was unsatisfactory because in a way you want her to be bigger than life. And yet I do think this was an experiment worth taking. And so I really do uh, applaud whether it was Kate Eddig herself or was it indeed Tim Carroll, the um, the. Um, I'm sorry. That I should. I said McDonald. I should have said Carol. He's the artistic director mm -hmm. of the festival. Um, I'm thinking of somebody else, the uh, guy who runs high theatrics and has uh, Between the Lines off Broadway at the moment. But Tim Carroll uh, directed it. And I, I do think this was a, a chance worth taking. Um, so while this production was a little less fun than um, it might have been because she was really a human being, I did find it at times refreshing and at times a little disappointing. So um, um, I still haven't made up my mind how I feel about it. But um, anyway, if you don't know Ernest, and I hope nobody listening fits that category, that um, if you were up there, I think you would have a delightful time because my, what a witty play. It's right up there with uh, so many of those great plays, those great comedies. And I'll even include Mary Mary in the bunch where virtually every line is funny. So um, so it really is quite wonderful to uh, to see it happen, even with the improbable ending, though. I have to say, I've always been curious that the last line of the play is not the importance of being earnest, but the vital 
importance of being earnest. Hmm. And I don't know why that isn't the title, given that that's the last line of the play. It's the only time that those words um, are mentioned together. It's not as if you ever hear them before. So I don't know why the comedy isn't called The Vital Importance of Being Earnest. But um, uh, and it's too late to ask Oscar Wilde, I have to say. <laughs> so much too late to ask Oscar Wilde. But um uh, what I also want to mention, I'm going to go back to Just to Get Married for a minute because I forgot to mention Catherine Gaudier. Now, that's G-A-U-T-H-I-E-R. And here we go again. The thing you've heard us say since the pandemic started, an understudy who had to take over. Um, I don't know if it was at a moment's notice. For all I know that she's been doing it for weeks because it's easier to believe she was doing it for weeks than indeed um, that she was just doing it for the first time. An amazing performance. And again, this is quite a character. This lady tells it like it is. She knows who she is. She knows her assets. She knows her liabilities. She knows what she wants. She knows what she doesn't want. And you really need a powerhouse performance. And Catherine Gaudier got it. So I, um, I'm remiss even more than uh, mistaking Tim Carroll for Tim McDonald to, um, to not mention uh, Catherine Gaudier when I was talking about uh, that show. As for The Doctor's Dilemma, my, my, what a timely play. It was written in 1906, but it deals with a disease. And should you get vaccinated for it? Wow. Now, admittedly, admittedly, to be fair, uh, what we saw on stage was not quite the play that um, George Bernard Shaw wrote. Uh, the director, Diana Donnelly, made some contemporary edits. And I'm also told that while the cast was rehearsing, some improvs, uh, speech improvs uh, wound up in the production. Um, certainly, George Bernard Shaw did not write the F word. Hmm. And by F, I don't mean Fauci, uh, because <laughs> really it, you, the parallels with what's going on today was, were really remarkable. However, the play really does deal with the fact that uh, this guy who um, this doctor who has um, found a what he thinks is a cure for tuberculosis, or at least it's worth trying. Clinical test trials would be uh, worthwhile here. But he can only take so many people and he has one slot that he could possibly fill. And does he fill it with an old friend? Or does he fill it with a very talented artist? I mean, the world, uh, 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 one who draws that type of artist. Mm -hmm. And um, wow, wow, um, this guy is great. However, he's a terrible human being. Terrible. So do you save the life of the terrible human being who could give the world great art? Or do you do it to your old friend who's a nice guy? May he live to be 100? Well, maybe he won't. But I mean, the point is, who do you save? Is art worth saving despite everything else? That's the real question that's asked here. And um, it's not until the second act that we meet the artist. And whoa, Jonathan Sousa really does a beautiful job in being amoral. He just does not understand morality. He doesn't care about morality. He's impervious to any of this stuff. He just is who he is. He offers no apologies for it. He tells you who he is. He tells you his value system, which is nobody else's. People are just aghast at what he's coming out with, but he doesn't care because he's being himself. And boy, those pictures. Wow. Aren't they something? And in fact, we find out that he paints on the walls of his uh, apartment 
and uh, it's quite, quite, quite uh, a very, very <laughs> dynamic um, set design by Gillian Gallo in uh, showing us that um, she uh, <laughs> what he what he's done. So so that was really something too. But especially the parallels with with what's going on today really made that quite special. All right, last one. Damn Yankees. Now, you know, this might see, I mean, what does Damn Yankees have to do with Bernard Shaw? Well, you know, maybe the rationale was Shaw wrote Man and Superman. And when you think of it, Damn Yankees deals with a man, Joe Boyd, and a Superman, Joe Hardy. Joe Boyd is a 50-ish uh, guy who's a fan of the Washington Senators, a team that is no longer in existence. Uh, this show was produced in 1955, but but it did say that the time was sometime in the future. Ironically enough, um, the Washington senators would leave Washington in um, 1960 for the 1961 season. They moved to Minnesota where they became the Minnesota Twins. And in 1965, they did beat out the Yankees for the pennant, which is what the whole story is about. So the Washington senators in a strange way did um, become uh, the the team responsible for the year the Yankees lost the pennant, which was the novel that Douglas Wallop wrote in 1954. That was in 1954. And in 1955, we already had the musical, you know, mm -hmm. by Richard Adler and Jerry Ross, the only people who can brag about having two Tony winning musicals in consecutive years. Not Roger oh. Hammerstein, not Sondheim, not Robert Lopez, not Jerry Herman. No. Adler and Ross, because the year before they had the Pajama Game, which won Best Musical, and Damn Yankees, which won Best Musical. And what was really interesting is that both of those shows opened in May. In fact, they opened 357 days apart. Not even a year. Not even a year. And they got them on, uh, of course, a lot of this had to do with um, Robert E. Griffith and Harold Prince, Harold S. Prince, as he was known in those days, for getting them on. But um, nobody has ever done that. Now, a lot of people would say, well, it should have happened in the 70s with Sondheim because he went for Company in 71 and he went for Little Night Music in 73. But in 72, um, the notoriously... Um, blind <laughs> follies um i'm sorry uh two gentlemen of verona is what i meant well i guess you know for that matter follies was notoriously maligned both of them have been notoriously maligned for different reasons but um two gentlemen broke the what would have been a three-game streak there so um so adler and ross uh did that and who knows what they would have done had jerry ross not died at the age of 29 from a terrible bronchial disease and it really ruined um richard adler's career his next musicals averaged, I think, seven performances each, something like that. So um, so it, it was really tough for him. Whatever um, alchemy, uh, whatever magic they had um, went down the drain when um, Jerry Ross died. I'm very happy to say that um, <laughs> Don Wilson in Hell uh, lived here in Man and Superman uh, because we have a Don Juan situation in Damn Yankees where a Don Juana, Lola, comes from Hell to raise hell with Joe the, so that he will be the property of Mr. Applegate now and forever. So, so director Brian Hill, thank God, used the original script. All right. There were a few tweaks here and there, but he did use the original script. And uh, as opposed to that 1994 rewrite, which broke my heart when um, one of the great lines was dropped when um, there's a press conference and um they asked Joe Hardy if they think Washington will win the pennant and Gloria Thorpe, a female sports writer, 
George Abbott, I'm sure, was responsible for that. He co-wrote the book with Douglas Wallop, who wrote the novel. But I'm sure that he <laughs> said, we, we've got to get some female stuff in there. So even though there were no female sports writers at the time, he put one in. There's even a joke about she likes to watch the naked men. And that turned out to be a real scandal for New, York, uh, New England Patriots many years later. But that's another story. Anyway, <laughs> so... Um, so uh, she says, yeah, they'll win the pennant when I swim the channel. And Joe Hardy goes ballistic and says, what are you talking about? Who's winning more games? Who's and then he says, oh, I guess I should keep my big mouth shut. And Mr. Welch, the owner of the team, says, no, these reporters don't know what it is to have your heart in a ball club. And for those of us who have grown up having our hearts in a ball club um, and looking at the standings each day and seeing where our team was and who's doing better and who's doing worse and all that goes with that. Um, we know what that means. And I was very disappointed in 94 when that was dropped. So, so anyway, but so it's basically the same book. However, however, I will say that I wish that somebody would um, do a few things with damn Yankees. Um, and um, the first thing that happens is, when the curtain goes up, you see uh, Meg, Joe Boyd's wife, talking to him, and he's not paying any attention to her because he's watching the ball game. Well, later, we're supposed to believe that he really loves her dearly. So what I would love to see uh, Dam Yankee start with is that they're having this wonderful conversation. Oh, they're getting along. They're laughing. They're having a great time. And then the game comes on. He turns on the TV, and now he doesn't want to know her. He's only interested in the Washington Senators, and that's when she sings six months out of every year. Okay, mm. that's what I'd like to see happen. Another thing that's so bizarre to me is that when Joe in batting practice – Joe Hardy starts hitting these long home runs um, that they say, okay, you can be on the team. Now, one player, Rocky does bring up an excellent point. He says, batting practice is one thing, but how does he do in a game? Now, I don't know if you know this, but in the 1950s, I think before the Orioles moved to Baltimore, I think it was a St. Louis Browns player. There was a major league pitcher who was extraordinary. He was amazing until the crowds came in. He had stage fright. He couldn't pitch in front of people, couldn't do it. They had to let him go. I mean, uh, if, 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 you know, ironically during the pandemic, I think they did play ball with nobody in the stands. He would have done fine, but um, too old by then, but that's another story. But, you know, so you never know how a person's going to do in a game, but here are these ball players celebrating shoeless Joe from Hannibal Moe and how he's going to save them. He hasn't done anything yet. That's really, uh, that really indicates that he can do it. Why are they singing this now? Now, I have to give credit to Alison Paymondon, who was the choreographer, because what she did was not just have the ball players singing, which is what happens. In fact, if you watch the movie, um, you will see that the ball players do this number exclusively. And there's a, if you know baseball, there's such a thing as nonchalanting. That's what it's called when a, a player catches the ball like it's, it's no big deal. I can just do this. Um, anybody could do this. But he's really aggrandizing himself by making it look easy. Um, Bob Fosse noticed that and put that into the choreography in the um, <laughs> in, in his number. But what Alison Paymondon does, which is so clever, she's does not limited to the ball players. She then has a bunch of fans come on and sing about Shoeless Joe from Hannibal Moe. So we get the impression time has passed and he has been in games and he has done well. So I thought that was a very smart move. That said, I would still like this number to be in the second act. Why? Because um, after Joe has been suspected of being somebody else entirely who took a bribe, um, they have a, 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 a benefit for him. And what you had, there was a song called Who's Got the Pain When They've Got the Mambo. Now, the, 
the mambo was a big thing in the 50s. And so it would be very good to have uh, a current dance craze mentioned in a musical. But it really was in there because they had Gwen Verdon, who was an extraordinary dancer. And um, she did, I think, with Peter Gennaro, who later became a big choreographer. But anyway, and did Annie, in fact. But um, but anyway, uh, oh, was it Buzz Miller? Anyway, I don't know. But anyway, there she was um, doing her stuff. And of course, she was wonderful. And um, this production didn't have Gwen Verdon. Um, and it, uh, this is another uh, production with an understudy who was very, very good. And um, so they had everybody involved. Everybody's celebrating um, who's got the pain when they got the mumbo. But this is a good place for Shoeless Joe from Hannibal Mo. Um, that's where it really should be because the mumbo has nothing to do with what's going on. Anyway, a terrific, terrific production. Great audience pleaser. Um, of course, of course, needless to say, some of the references that we got um, are, are quite dated. Now, um, there's a scene where one of the ballplayers is trying to sell life insurance to a teammate. And that happened in those days that these ballplayers back in the 50s and earlier, of course, had day jobs once the season mm, ended yeah. because they weren't making enough money. Back in 1959, Jim Brosnan, a pitcher, wrote a book called The Long Season about what it was like to be a baseball player. And he was mentioned that his contract that he was first offered was for $16,000. That's what he would get paid for the season. Now, Mets fans can tell you that Max Scherzer, who plays for the team now, gets $43,333,333 a year, a three-year contract. He's guaranteed that, which may mean that he gets $16,000 for every pitch that he hurls. You know, so under these circumstances, no wonder that the crowd laughed heartily at every play ball player should have a sideline. Um, sure. So um, so really, uh, it, it, that's one way in which the show has dated. But the idea of a person wanting to return to his youth and have a second chance and do what he always wants to do is certainly timeless. And of course, this is based on the Faust story, which was <laughs> had been around for a long time before the damn Yankees or the year the Yankees lost the pennant uh, was. So um, it's, it's a show that still resonates and the audience had a wonderful time at it, not the least of which because Brian Hill and Alison Pemignon did such a good job with it. What was that Mets uh, player? What was he making? Max Scherzer. Max Scherzer. Do you think... Yeah. Uh, during some sort of uh, press availability, Max Scherzer says, Chris Harper pays my salary. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know yeah. if Max – we'll have to have Max on and he'll tell us. Yes, okay. that would be good. And, um, and, there, and there's a very good possibility that uh, I was – we before we started recording, we were saying that uh, lots of people are saying damn Yankees this week because the Yankees are doing so well. And, they are. And there's a and possibility w of uh, – mm -hmm. what? A Subway Series. A Subway Series, and uh, right. we'll get Michael Dale out there to cover that. that oh, that'd big, be great. Yeah, he knows his Met Met yeah. yeah, a, yeah. Uh, Michael Dale and Peter Felicia should write a baseball theater book together. <laughs> You know? <laughs> well, ironically enough, um, with what I didn't realize until I, uh, I mean, I knew this, but I never put two and two together. It was amazing how impressive the Yankees were in that. Well, no, what I want to say is the New York teams were in that era. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because um, they won in 49. They, 
they won in 50, they won in 51, they won in 52, they won in 53. In 54, they did not win. They did not win. The Cleveland Indians had an amazing season, winning 110 games and losing mm-hmm. only, um, what, 44? Yeah. So an amazing thing. And then they lost four straight to the New York Giants. Okay. In 1955, the Yankees didn't win at all, but Brooklyn did. You know, so, I mean, 56, the Yankees won. 57, they didn't. No, no, no. 58, they did. Yes, 59, they didn't. But, whoa, those New York teams really brought a lot of pleasure to New York, at least some of New York, because obviously there were people with Giants fans who hated the Yankees and Brooklyn fans who hated the Yankees and Yankee fans who hated the Giants and Dodgers, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. But, boy, New York really was swimming with uh, great teams in those days. And uh, right now, yes, as you say, there are two of them right now. And, of course, anything can happen anybody who remembers that 1964 season when the philadelphia phillies were just cruising along and just had to win that pennant and suddenly it was the st louis cardinals who did so you just never know what's going to happen for me it's it has switched from anybody but the boston red sox who seem to be having rebuilding years these years but uh uh, for me, it's anybody but the Astros. As long as the Astros don't win, I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> we all have uh, situations like that. You know, uh, I remember when the Islanders were doing so well in, oh, in yeah. the uh, 80s, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, so many hockey fans were saying, anybody but the Islanders. You know, mm-hmm. uh, that's what I want to see happen. So, sure. Um, it's it's just like shows in the strange sort of way. Yeah. You know, um, I remember a time when people loved Danny. Um, And then, of course, they didn't because it was so successful. People turn on shows once they get tremendously successful. Some do, not everybody, of course. But um, but as Nathan Lane said, after the producers opened uh, uh, in an interview we gave about a month later, he said it won't be long before the backlash will happen. And -hmm. indeed, that's um, what always happens to any hit show and any hit team. Yeah. So uh, do you have anything on the horizon for the upcoming 1776? Have have you scheduled five different performances you're going to go to see of it? <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but I will say that friends from Boston speak very highly of it. Um, <clears throat> the people who don't speak highly of it, uh, who are just rabidly um, insane about um, the fact that it's being tried, are people who haven't seen it yet. So um, I'm withholding judgment um, and uh, waiting to see what I see. And um, I won't make any predictions um, or feelings until I do see it. There's plenty of time to talk about it afterwards. Why talk about it before? Yeah. And then we have uh, at a New York Theater Workshop, the big news of uh, Jonathan Groff joining Merrily, which is, uh, seems to be, uh, w- what do you think? Are we going to get a Merrily revival on Broadway? I imagine they have that in mind, and it seems like something that's been long overdue. There was even talk of Roundabout doing it a few years ago, but I guess that didn't come. I think the pandemic might have um, put a, a knife in that one. But I still remember so vividly when I heard they were closing after 16 performances back in 1981. I still remember so vividly saying that's the smartest thing mm-hmm. they could have done. This is another variation on always leave them wanting more because you don't want us. Okay, excuse us. We made a mistake. We'll go away. Yeah, I'm not. We're going to fight. We're going to show them that we. No, no, no. Mm-hmm. These were smart people. They knew what they were doing. All right. You know, fine, fine. 
we'll take our marbles and go. And suddenly everybody wanted to see it. So it, yeah, nobody would want to see it if we're in 193 performances. You know, it, it was so smart to close it after two weeks. And Lord knows how many productions there have been a Merrily since then. And most of them tremendously successful. But no, we haven't had the Broadway revival yet. And um, I'm, if this one does move, it's, of course, going to be so sad that um, Sondheim and Firth, for that matter, didn't live to see it. But um, but Daniel Radcliffe's an excellent um, yeah. uh, um, choice for uh, Charlie. And uh, I can see Jonathan Groff. And I love Lindy Mendez. Lindsay Mendez, uh, yeah, I was yeah. just going to say. Yeah. Uh, since she was uh, in that show with Sherry Renee Scott, she had such joy being a backup singer that I just fell in love with her then and there. And she's a very good choice for that part, a very good choice indeed. So um, I mentioned that I've seen... Um, in earnest 17 times it hasn't been that many fewer since uh ephemerally not very fewer indeed um and um i've gone here there and everywhere to see it um pretty much anywhere east of the mississippi and north of the mason dixon line i've seen a production so um so it's it's going to oh, it's always great fun to see it again and uh i still remember so vividly being at the first preview where i was in misery during that first act and in heaven during the second act where people were being nice to each other mm-hmm. but anyway i then returned at the final performance november 28th final performance we're closing and um and I remember going up to my friend David Wolf, who was a great friend of Lonnie Price, and um, saying at the uh, end of the first act, running up the aisle to see him and saying, I don't care. They fixed it. And I really feel they did. A lot of people will never take to this show for one reason or another. We always see that people are confused that it goes backwards. I don't see what the problem is. 1970. I mean, they give you the dates. I mean, what's the problem? Um, but anyway, um, it uh, it's, it's a show that really, I think, has no matter how much it gets produced, it's still underrated as far as I'm concerned. And I'm going to be delighted to see it again. And so will Jennifer Ashley Tepper, whose yeah. favorite musical it is. Mm-hmm. Oh boy, I can't wait for that. We have to have Jen Jen back on to say hello. Sure. We haven't spoken to her in so long. Yeah, we spoke to her I think in the beginning of 2020 during the pandemic. I think uh-huh. we talked to her back then, but I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, so uh, uh, there, uh, the Off Broadway revival of Kinky Boots has just kicked off. Uh, are you planning to go see that? Oh, I've been. Oh, I've you've been. been. Yeah, yeah, it's terrific. And are um, we past an embargo there on that? I'm not sure. I don't know. So why don't we? Uh, but it's terrific. So, well, it's terrific, it's terrific and, and we'll uh, and we'll talk yeah. about it when right. maybe Michael gets back next week and right. see That's if Michael sees it. Sure. Uh, but also that physics show returned to off Broadway. It did. No, I have to. I have to fess up here that um, in terms of the physics show uh, that. Um, the producer, Eric Krebs, is uh, the producer of mm-hmm. my play, God Shows Up. So I, uh, that's a full disclosure thing here. But um, And I saw the physics show many years ago, and uh, I went back. Dave Maiolo, um, that's M-A-I-U-L-L-O, um, is such a wonderful teacher. And you really need a wonderful teacher um, to teach physics. Um, I have to admit that um, when I was a freshman in college, out of 526 kids taking physical science, I finished 525th above a kid from the Philippine Islands for whom English was a second <laughs> language. So this is something I don't take to. And I remember flunking time and time and time again. And then a great teacher I got in physical science and I got a B. 
So a lot of it has to do with the teacher. Yeah, and I'm I'm not excusing myself, believe me, but I will say a lot of it has to do with the teacher. And Dave is quite the teacher. He makes it fun. He gets the audience engaged. He asks them for a lot of um, quips, answers. He brings them on stage, and uh, he does amazing things that you don't expect could possibly happen. I mean, um, do you really think that um, a ping pong ball could destroy totally three soda cans? Do you really think that if you put a can of Coke in a big vat of water, that it will sink? While if you put a Diet Coke in a vat of water, it will float? Why is that? Well, he'll tell you. So um, there are effects with um, fire that uh, are quite um, startling. And he warns you when you're going to hear a loud noise. Uh, He's very, very... um, interested in making his audience comfortable. And I do believe that if Dave had been my teacher, I might have even gotten an A. <laughs> All right. So that physics show is running for three weeks uh, down at Theater 555, which is 555 West 42nd Street, way over almost on the Hudson River. Mm-hmm. So uh, through September 4th. And uh, I think that I just might take my daughter to go see that. That yeah, sounds like a lot fun. of fun. Yeah, yeah. All right. So before we wrap up for this morning, I want to remind everybody that you could subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to get us an Apple Podcast. There's many ways to listen to us. Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to find a podcast, you can find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at BroadwayRadio.com as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do we have an answer for last week's trivia? Fiddler on the Roof, Little Shop of Horrors, Mata Hari, Oh Brother, One Mo Time, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, Via Galactica. What review included a song that mentions all these musicals? Well, back in the 80s, there was a review called Upstairs at O'Neill's, with the just starting out B.B. Newworth, by the way. Um, and they had all these wonderful writers contribute. And um, that include Doug Bernstein or Stein. I always get it mixed up because one brother, Doug, uses one pronunciation and the other brother, Jed, uses a different pronunciation. But anyway, um, uh, and Dennis Markell uh, did fabulous materials for the show, including a song called Something, which was Mr. Carp's rebuttal to Morales's nothing anyway but this song um that mentions all these musicals was called mama's turn from upstairs at o'neill's where the mothers of mel gusso and clive of the times clive barnes of the post frank rich of the times and john simon of new york magazine the mothers all go to the theater and compare notes on various musicals and praise and condemn the shows that i mentioned uh, a little earlier so Tony Janicki vaulted back into first place, followed by Isaac Blevins, Jeff Falenga, Brigadood, and Paul Witte. That was it. This was a real trivia question. You either knew this or you didn't. It wasn't a brain teaser like this one. A musical sports a song that's sung on the 13th, the 16th, the 21st, and the 24th of a certain month. What's the song? What's the musical? All right. If you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwaybdo.com. 
we'll let you know if you're on the right track. As we mentioned at the top of the show, Michael is in P-Town on a little vacation, so hopefully uh, he'll be able to return next week, and uh, we will see you there. So on behalf of Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.